0: Welcome to an empowering episode of Beyond Autistic Burnout. Today, we're diving deep into a vital topic as part of Disability Employment Awareness Month, success enablers versus reasonable adjustments at work. Discover empowering strategies to unleash your full potential with today's guest, Charles Kranzberger. Join us in this enlightening and interactive conversation, and be sure to stick around until the end to learn how you can get your success enabler tools this week. Welcome to Beyond Autistic Burnout, the talk show designed to empower ADHD autistic professionals like you to thrive in your career, life, and beyond. I'm Carol Jean Whittington an ADHD autistic business professional who's not just surviving, but thriving after decades in burnout. And I'm thrilled to have you here with us. Each episode, I'll be joined by inspiring guests as we dive deep into transformative strategies and insights. We'll show you how to break free from burnout, ignite sustainable energy, and embrace your authentic self. Together, we'll navigate career challenges, nurture relationships, and excel in every aspect of life. It's time to fuel your success and embark on your journey of Let's take this incredible journey together. Get ready to be an authentic leader and unleash sustainable energy in your life. Welcome to Beyond Autistic Burnout. Let's start thriving. Hey guys. Okay, so it is Disability Employment Awareness Month. And just a little quick housekeeping heads up here. So, I've had some challenges with my Wi-Fi adapter card. So, if by some reason I disappear, I'll be right back and my guest Charles will be here to keep it going so don't panic. We had a bit of a glitch last week. So, stay tuned. Don't don't worry. I'm here. Uh we're working on some tech issues on my end. <laughs> so, today we're diving into the topic of reasonable adjustments versus success enablers in the workplace, focusing on the experiences of neurodistinct individuals. We've gathered insights from our audience about the challenges they face and the support that we need to thrive in our careers. From the responses we re- received to our question recently on Instagram at Brain." Asking, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced in finding and keeping a job? It's clear that these challenges are widespread and impactful. We've heard about external challenges such as the work environment, transportation, and sensory overload, making it difficult for many of us to navigate the workplace effectively. But it's not just external factors. Neurodistinct individuals often face internal challenges such such as Fluctuating energy levels, communication differences, and executive functioning issues due to lack of support and environments. These challenges can affect our performance and overall well being. Think burnout. Support and understanding play a crucial role in addressing these impact areas. Our audience shared stories of how colleagues and management support made a significant difference. Clear expectations, Patients with communication differences and inclusivity and in training were mentioned as key elements that were helpful. However, there's a darker side to this narrative. Discrimination and stereotypes. Yep, I think we've all felt those and experienced them sadly. Many neurodistinct individuals find themselves misunderstood and stereotyped due to our natural traits. This can lead to burnout demotions, misunderstandings, or dismissals, further hindering our career progression and overall employment. With over 68 million U.S. residents being identified as neurodistinct, that's roughly 20% of the population. That gives us a current unemployment total of around 23 million people at the estimated rate of 35% unemployment within the neurodistinct category. Per an article by My Ability Jobs, neurodivergent people are more likely to be unemployed than people with any other disability. Unemployment for neurodivergent adults runs at least as high as 30 to 40%, which is three times the rate for people with disability and eight times the rate for people without disabilities. Shining a light on disability employment this month is vital because it is still legal to pay people with disabilities sub-minimum wage in over 37 states here in the U.S. So how can organizations shift from a strict reasonable adjustments approach to a more global approach of success enablers in the workplace? This question is what we aim to discuss and answer today. But before we continue, It's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. (laughs) Today, we're thrilled to have neurodiversity ally Charles Kranzberger join us on Beyond Autistic Burnout. Charles is a proven practitioner with an impressive track record of creating value for enterprises and neurodistinct individuals with experience spanning the technology, government, healthcare, and higher education sectors. He's deeply passionate about helping businesses embrace authentic neuroinclusion. In his current role, Charles collaborates with a global network of stakeholders to foster awareness, acceptance, and advancement of neurodistinct people in the workplace. His vision revolves around constructing a future of work where scalable, authentic neuroinclusion permeates company cultures, human capital strategies, and technology solutions. Today, Charles will shed light on success enablers versus reasonable adjustments at work in the context of Disability Employment Awareness Month and so much more. So join us and engage in the chat box for this enlightening conversation and tap into Charles's wealth of insights and be sure to listen for how you can get your success enabler tools later this week. The chat box is open on LinkedIn and YouTube to take your questions and share your ideas and insights along the way. So please join us and be part of this interactive conversation today and every Tuesday here on the live talk show. Oh, my goodness. Charles, welcome to the show.
1: Appreciate it, Carol Jean. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while now.
0: Oh, so glad that you're here with us. And we've got Alan and Sergio in the house. Hey, guys, over on LinkedIn. So drop in, tell us hello, Liz, make sure we know you're here because we can't necessarily see you unless you're in that comments box here for us to take a look at since we're on our broadcast studio in StreamYard. We're so excited that you guys are joining us. So Charles, I always love to not just show the professional picture because, you know, that's just one element of us. We're also human people out in the real world, Right. This is such a great photograph of you and your gorgeous fiance. Tell us a little bit about this photo and and what you guys were up to.
1: Right. So, so like yourself, you know, Carol Jean, I'm an Alabama resident. So this was down on, on the Alabama coast. Yeah, just, just my fiance had actually never been fishing before. So this was her first fishing trip. And as you can see there, it was quite a success. Uh, yeah, there was some, some interesting you know, photos taken with uh, that childlike uh, smile on her face as she was reeling in her first fish. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what that looks like.
0: Oh, I love that. And yeah, you definitely have a full stringer of fish right there. That's one of my favorite things to do. Josh and I love to go fishing. Oh, we have got such an incredible conversation and topic for today. And I cannot wait to really dive into this with you. Oh my goodness. So Charles, you're an ally and a promoter of neurodiversity in the workplace. And throughout our conversation, we're going to explore how organizations can create more inclusive environments for neurodistinct individuals. Your expertise is going to be invaluable in this conversation as we're navigating some complex landscapes here when we're talking about reasonable adjustments versus success enablers. Charles, it's so great to have you here. I'm so thrilled. Can you start by telling our audience a bit about your background and your work in this field? Like, why did how did you end up as an ally in working in neuro inclusion?
1: Right. Yeah, I think for me, Carol Jean, I, yeah, I can really trace that first step down the path that I'm continuing to walk down today back to my childhood. You know, I'm originally from a a small town in Wisconsin, a dairy town, you know, one stoplight, more cows than people, that kind of a thing, right? Uh, And my mother, you know, worked in our school district as a special education paraprofessional. So, you know, there's just a couple hundred kids in my school. And, you know, oftentimes my mother is, you know, at the table or the row of desks next to me paired up one-on-one with these young boys who are in my grade. So I kind of had a fascination about her work and these folks that she was working with and i think before i even had language or notion around disability and neurodiversity you know she was really instilling in me those different strengths-based values you know as well as the the difference not deficits kind of approach to looking at these folks right and she would often you know highlight like oh they like pokemon too they like football too and we had you know these conversation starters and became fast friends and you know i was friends with these folks throughout my childhood, right? And I noticed that when we were getting set to graduate like junior, senior high school, when everybody's talking about where they're going to college or you know what they're gonna be when they grow up, that kind of a thing. I noticed these folks falling off of a cliff and not having real solid answers about what their future was looking like. So to explore that further, my first job was actually in our special education summer school departments. And I didn't realize this at the time um, when we were going on one of these field trips during a week that had more of a vocational emphasis, but we did a tour of what I realized now was a sheltered workshop. Um, Like you had mentioned in the intro, you know, folks getting paid subminimum wage, you know, segregated um, type of a situation, getting paid a couple cents for every little piece of metal or plastic that they put together, that kind of thing. And I was like, I just grew up with these folks. Like I know what they're capable of. I know what they're interested in and this isn't it. Um, so I was you know, really interested in exploring different ways to address that problem in the world that I saw at a young age. So my initial notion of how to approach that problem was to become a special education teacher myself. That's where I spent my first seven semesters of undergrad. After about my third student teaching placement, realized that the the K-12 system wasn't really for me. So I was like, how can I work with these folks, but maybe in a different system, in a different age range? Working with my advisor, I heard about rehabilitation counseling and ended up pursuing my master's degree in rehab counseling out in Colorado um, and launched my career out there in the division of vocational rehabilitation. So I had a youth caseload that was primarily neurodivergent for a while during my internship, as well as a blind and low vision caseload for a couple of years, you know, once they ended up hiring me on after my internship. Again, working for the government had its moments. I really enjoyed the, the you know working with my caseload and getting to know those folks and adding value in their careers, but wanted to try out a different system. So I was part of that early wave of the great resignation, in uh, the pandemic to uh, 2020, ended up moving to Alabama, where you are, Carol Jean, and uh, accepting a job in the Office of Disability Services at the University of Alabama. Had over 500 students on my caseload. Again, many of them were neurodistinct and had all the students in the college autism program there as well. So really had a crash course of what um, you know, operating in that university ecosystem looks like as a disability or neurodiversity practitioner. Uh, again, had a good time there, but became a father during the pandemic. And when I had a, a six month old who was not sleeping and you know, I was commuting an hour and a half each way from Birmingham to Tuscaloosa, I was burning out pretty fast. So wanted a remote role ended up accepting a position as the director of Neurodivergent Town Solutions with Simplify. Um, we had built the Neurodiversity Career Connector on behalf of that Neurodiversity Work Employer Roundtable group. So I was working with the different employers and candidates who were in that system um, and helping them to leverage that ecosystem to maximum effect. Ended up being impacted by the layoffs about a month ago. But you know, intending to spend the the rest of my career in this neurodiversity at workspace and figuring out so what that's going to look like. So yeah, looking forward to speaking to you more about that today. Yeah, I, I tend to ramble, so sorry if that was a mouthful. But yeah, that's long story short. You know how how I got here and you know where I'm where I'm trying to go.
0: I love it. And you and I met when you had um, started your job at the University of Alabama. So. <laughs> We've, we've known each other for a minute here. And it's really nice because, you know, you and I've had so many wonderful conversations along the way around, you know, how are our adjustments and how is accessibility and inclusion really happening on so many different levels, not just in the higher education arena, but also in, in employment and work. And that's really kind of where we're diving in today. So let's kind of dive into the heart of the topic today around reasonable adjustments versus success enablers. And that was the term that you shared with me recently, and I absolutely love it. So can you explain why it's so essential for organizations to understand how the approach to creating successful environments and teams is better served by the success enabler approach versus reasonable adjustments? Because, you know, we get a lot of like bristling in the corporate world when we're talking about, quote unquote, reasonable adjustments, because, you know, from the neurodistinct side, I'm thinking, well, what's reasonable to one person isn't going to be considered reasonable to another. And essentially, it's not from a place of empowerment and service to me as the neurodistinct person, when I'm having to meet someone else's subjective definition of what's reasonable, because I may have a specific need and that's something that is then enabling me to do my job in the best way possible without like burning me out or worse, creating, you know, a contentious environment within the team because people are viewing me as getting special treatment and all these other kind of things. So what, what are your, your insights on that, Charles? Cause I know you're really passionate about it.
1: Right. And I, I agree with you. The language that we use is so important in, in terms of framing these issues and there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm, I'm going to do my best. So I think from an organization perspective, using the term success enablers really speaks to the evidence that supports the business case for neuroinclusion, inclusion. And that business case is really now at a point where it's overwhelming. Right. Um, and it's evolved from this perspective. Um, from where these businesses were saying, okay, we're going to bring in this top neurodistinct talent, and that's going to be a key differentiator for our business, you know, from their unique perspectives and contributions, which of course is still true, but it's really evolved to the point where neuroinclusive best practices which are often referred to as these success enablers, benefit everyone at your company, right? So you can think of your neurodistinct staff as that like canary in the coal mine. So they're highly attuned to any inaccessible products or processes or any other suboptimal elements in that workplace culture. So when you're designing for their use case and you're tuning into their feedback, you can optimize those products, processes, and cultures for 100% of your workforce and customers rather than just 20%, right? So you can think of neuroinclusion and those success enablers as just good hygiene for your company, where the benefits of those success enablers or neuroinclusive best practices are going to flow throughout the company rather than just strictly to the neurodistinct Staff, which is how it's framed with the reasonable accommodations paradigm. And you know, so I think you know, when you have a rock solid business case in place, the success enabler approach and language just tends to fit well with when situated within that rather than this more, like you had said, unapproachable uh reasonable accommodations language. So that's really how I frame it up.
0: You know, just to kind of layer in on what you've said here, because I think those are some really important sort of reframes and, and some understandings to have around why the language matters. And I think the other element there is when we're looking at this from sort of are you walking the talk and what's your talk? So we've got a lot of companies out there that are just ticking a box. They're on the I want to be part of the neuro inclusion and neurodiversity at work bandwagon because it looks good. But then they're using terms like reasonable adjustments. And really what that's doing is sending out the message that we're not really looking to create a psychologically safe or neuroinclusive environment. Because when you're using the term success enabler and you're really applying that to create that culture of how do we enable all of our employees to be their best self? How are we also approaching, you know, the language that we're using because then we're setting our intention, either consciously or subconsciously. We're setting our intention when we choose our language and when we're choosing the intention behind the language. So I love how you sort of bring this all together. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about neurodiversity at work, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, the autistic employee. And I think we've got to go beyond that because it's also dyslexia and ADHD employment month. So Charles, I would love for you to share. And sorry, the dog's going crazy. The male lady just pulled up. <laughs> it never fails. It never fails. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, just the fun stuff of being live, right? So I would love to kind of explore some of the unique aspects and strengths of dyslexic and ADHD neurodistinct employees with you, Charles. What are some insights to share around that?
1: Sure. I, I think the the key takeaway there, which you know, like like you had mentioned, you know, from an organizational perspective, when you're not maintaining that status quo, when you're you're actually genuinely and authentically asking, you know, how can we address these folks' support needs, you're going to find that you're unlocking a lot of those amazing street uh, strengths that have been masked by those unaddressed support needs, right? Um, So I think when when you're looking at, you know, strengths um, that are really in-demand skill sets, like the creativity and the systems level thinking and the innovative thinking, the problem solving, uh, the communication and so on, you know, these are the things that AI aren't going to replace, right? These things are going to stay in-demand and these are the types of skill sets that the employers are really craving. Um, It's been interesting to see how a lot of these strengths and skill sets, and that's not necessarily an exhaustive list, just to name a few, right, Um, have have really lended themselves well to uh, neurodistinct entrepreneurs um, who you know maybe haven't fit the mold in full-time employment, but when they have launched their own businesses or pivoted to contract work and so on, you know, they they've had really fruitful experiences there as they've been able to really lean on those strengths and design their work life so that those support needs are met. And you know, I think it's it's interesting how there's so many low to no cost, really light lift ways to address those support needs and unlock those strengths, right? So if you're, if you're looking at the, you know, job descriptions and company materials, you know, do you have those dyslexia friendly best practices in place like the answer fonts, you know, avoiding underlines and italics and you know, do you have, you know, space are you eliminating those walls of text and using bullet points and set that kind of thing right um you know can you have a skill based interview versus the more traditional behavioral interview which you know the skills base tends to be more inclusive and more predictive right um you know when you're when you're onboarding you know are the, are those folks sufficiently supported, you know, because I think there's a lot of conversation about hiring, but not so much about retention and what that looks like and how you can, uh, you know, align their strengths, you know, throughout that that process. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm rambling again, but yeah, that just to name a, a few areas that, you know, I would certainly highlight in terms of what those folks bring to the table and, you know, what addressing those support needs can look like to unlock those strengths.
0: And I found, you know, we created the NeuroDrive teams and, Part of the NeuroDrive teams is, you know, we're 100% neurodistinct professionals in and within the NeuroDrive teams, you know, that's also part of a very strategic research project that I created because I wanted to highlight and be able to show over a long term. What does it look like for a completely neurodistinct team? you know, from autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, you know, Tourette's, all the different elements, dyscalculia, dyspraxia, all of that to come together in a team and to be able to chart and show how do we work together over time? How do we solve problems? You know, what are those different elements? And it's really incredible. And I'm so proud of our NeuroDrive teams because we really have, I think, learned so much more about ourselves, learned about working with people within our same neurotype with different approaches, with different needs. And I, I love, I've got some things I wanted to kind of highlight here from around around the web. Um, there's a great article on LinkedIn called The Benefits of ADHD at Work by Megan Glennie. And she's a certified ADHD life coach. And I love some of the things that she highlights that are benefits of ADHD, the resilience. And I love that because, you know, so often, uh, a lot of folks are viewed as, as not being very resilient. And I think that's actually not true. We're exceptionally resilient folks. Innovative thinking, humor, almost definitely, definitely a humor element there. Very passionate. Willingness to take risks. I mean, you know, Charles, you had mentioned some of the, the traits and characteristics that we look for as employers, and these are the things that are are a natural trait and quality of people who are ADHD, willingness to take the risk, right? Persistence. Those are such important things. And then we've got benefits of uh, people who are dyslexic within the workforce, you know, that innovative thinking, that problem solving, empathy, you know, so often, you know, as the autistic ADHD, you know, dyslexic, a lot of times because we're nonlinear thinkers and our communication styles Um, are very unique within our own language and culture of of neurodistinct brains, we get misinterpreted. And we talked about sort of that dark side element to the stereotyping and the misunderstanding that happens when we had that that question that came out in the Mind Your Autistic Brain community recently. And a lot of it is that we are viewed or believed to not have empathy or not be empathetic, when it's actually the opposite for so many of us, uh, because we've worked in the world where we've really had, we've struggled or we've been discriminated or bullied, you know, and so many other hurtful things that happen, we're exceptionally empathetic of other people. Um, You know, we have reasoning skills that are just incredible. People who are dyslexic often show great strengths in their their reasoning and their ability to see big picture items, three-dimensional thinking, storytelling. Oh my gosh. ADHD and dyslexic people are some of the best storytellers, they really are. So, you know, these are just some of the traits and the things that show up and, and that we really, I think, fail to look at on an individual basis. So Charles, some of the other, one of the other elements that you, you and I wanted to kind of talk about was let's kind of talk about this back to the office shift, you know, because so many companies are transitioning back in the office, into office work and some that were fully remote are. or switching to like all 100% back in the office. Some are doing sort of a gradual, some are still setting up hybrids. Uh, but there's a big conversation around this when we're talking about accessibility and we're talking about support enablers. And, and you've got a great article that you had read and, and shared with me. And I would love for you to kind of dive in a little bit about you know what are some of the challenges and the opportunities here? And you know if we're an distinct person and one of the success enablers is we really are thriving in that remote but our companies either shifting hybrid or maybe full time back into the office what are some of your insights and thoughts on this
1: sure yeah it seems like you know so much of this conversation carol jean has been based on Hunches or you know small anecdotes, and that's you know like you had mentioned the at least one in five or twenty percent of your workforce that's neurodistinct hasn't been particularly well considered in the equation you know with the decision making right. Uh, so the the article that I came across that you had mentioned was from Dr. Nick Bloom, who's a Stanford professor of economics, and he's one of the top voices on LinkedIn for uh, remote work, and he had you know really broken it down beautifully in this article you in the last couple of weeks where he had Spoken to the fact that you know the the productivity is something that often gets mentioned, you know, when talking about remote work versus in office, right? And he had talked about that the the data is really mixed, but much of that mixed data that had talked about productivity concerns was really attributed to those like pandemic era forced pivots for companies, right? So they didn't particularly have very robust digital infrastructures or, you know, knowledge about how to mentor employees in a remote environment or, you know, how to build culture, you know, particularly when you're bringing new employees on and so on. But, you know, for the employers that that really you know, crack the case there, you know, they did not really see those productivity dips. So, you know, while you see some stories, studies that, you know, say that, you know, productivity is down in remote, some studies that say productivity is up, you know, it was really about how well they pivoted, you know, versus the inherent, you know, quality of remote work versus in-office work. And, you know, he also highlighted that, you know, regardless of the the productivity piece, there is really an overwhelming, you case, you know, from, again, that, that enterprise-level perspective for the profitability associated with remote work. You know, you, you just think about the overhead associated with having an office and a lease and just everything that it, you know, takes to maintain that office environment. Um, When, when you think about, you know, all of the the hiring challenges that companies are facing today. Um, When you're reducing that time to hire and, you know, you're improving the quality of those candidates by hiring from a broader talent pool in a remote work setting, you know, just the amount of profitability that that generates for you, Um, you know, eliminating the the commutes, you know, your employees aren't as burned out and, you know, don't need to take as long of breaks during the day um, and just just have more bandwidth to be, you know, I, I think he had mentioned in the article, um, I think they were like four or five percent more productive each minute because, you know, they, they just had more bandwidth to, to bring to the workplace every day in that kind of a situation. So, you know, it was, it was a really thorough breakdown and, you know, the the overwhelming, you um, feeling that I left with, you know, having, having, you know, seen all the data, you know, was that uh, again, particularly from a neurodistinct perspective, but also just on the whole from an organizational lens, you know, that you know, remote work being demonized and, you know, this whole re- return to office uh, movement is, you know, a bit knee-jerk and, and short-sighted.
0: And I think the part of the conversation that's really important too, and I, I love I love how you know the article sort of laid out all these different elements but you know you can go out there and google in office versus remote i mean any anything you want to look at there is someone who has made a case for one perspective or the other right and i think if we're looking at being a company that is truly invested in growth and innovation and and within our our human element When we're invested in that, then we're looking at not what is the trend? What is the latest article guru telling me? What we're doing is we're looking at and asking the question, how does this best serve my overall goal and purpose for our company, for our culture, for our people and for humanity? Right. I mean, we don't create businesses just for the heck of it. We do it because we're trying to help and solve a problem, right? We're trying to bring something to the market that maybe isn't there or that isn't serving everyone. And I think when we look at strictly just like remote versus in office, you know, you have to do a lot of that value check for yourself as the leader and in as a company and look at, you know, what is it that we value? What's important to us? And how do we creating success enablers, maybe it's that you have a hybrid, flexible model, right? Maybe it's that, you know, hey, if somebody needs to be in office and that's how they thrive, then we put together, you know, that group of folks that that's where they thrive. So they're the ones that come into the office. We've got our remote group, right? And I think a lot of times, you know, from a leadership perspective and a director perspective, we kind of think, oh gosh, now I got to manage all these people in these different environments and that's going to be harder. But I, I challenge that very stinking thinking in the sense that when you are managing people, when they're in an environment that they're thriving and they're enabled to be the most successful version of themselves and they're bringing their best, it is so much easier to manage. It really is. I I love all of the points and everything that you brought to the table on that. Oh, my goodness. So, Charles, I would love to kind of dive into what are some of the success factors that are the key statistics and maybe success enablers for neurodistinct individuals, you know, if they're adapting to office based work. Right. So let's say you're not really given a choice. And you're told, hey, you you got to come back into the office. What are some insights that you'd like to share with folks to kind of help them?
1: Sure. So, so yeah, there there are many, and of course, you know, there there's not going to be a, a one size fits all silver bullet solution that's going to you know speak to every neurodistinct use case. But oh, you know, again, come on, <laughs> yeah. we,
0: need, we that. Want that'd that. be
1: great, right? That'd be great, <laughs> right. right? Whoever cracks the code on that is is going to be you know very successful. But you know, for you know some of those some of those success enablers that would have the highest utility and, you know, we speak to a lot of those use cases, you know, you already hit on one in terms of the, the flexible, you know, uh, Potentially hybrid type work arrangements, right? So there's a lot of folks who are like, you know, maybe if I can just get there before everybody else is in there and is trying to say good morning. Did you catch the game last night? Did you see this most recent episode of the show? And you know, chit-chatting away. Um, if they can just get in there during some non-peak traffic hours and you know, in a be in a more sensory friendly environment, so that can really promote their focus and pro- productivity, so that they can lock in and set the stage to to have a productive day, rather than feeling a bit. Discombobulated from the start, um, and I, you know, I used to talk to a lot of students when I was at Alabama who were ADHDers who would, you know, talk to me about, you know, is, particularly those who had the stimulant medications. They're like. I got this three or four hour window where I can really lock in and get done everything that I need to get done for the day. Um, but if you're if you're asking me to to do something at you know seven a.m. or you know five or six o'clock at night, it's it's not going to be quite as productive for me, and I'm not going to be as as innovative and you know be able to be a peak performer during those times. So, so really knowing yourself and what those windows look like for you and how you can align those with your workflow, you know, I, I think is a, a big piece of the puzzle for a lot of folks. I think, you know, again, to that effect, but, you know, from a different uh, approach, having the uninterrupted working hours can be a big piece for people, too. Uh, Again, when people are kind of spontaneously, you know, bringing up these different tasks or knocking on your door or or chit-chatting or, you know, just otherwise – Um, you know, taking your attention away from what you're doing, it can be hard for a lot. I mean, a lot of folks, period. Um, But, you know, especially, you know, some of the neurodistinct folks that I've talked to, um, to have that attention broken and then try to get back in to that, you know, stream of consciousness that they were on. Right. So I I think having those uninterrupted work hours can reduce those distractions and, again, optimize their productivity from having that unbroken focus. Um, Sometimes, you know, you might be able to request, depending on what your setup looks like, a, a work station relocation Um, you know unfortunately the the open office plan has been really popularized so if you're in a cubicle right in the the middle of that you know that might not be the best fit for you Um, so again from a perspective of reducing distractions and avoiding those high traffic areas where you know somebody might be heating up you know fish for lunch in the kitchen and there might be the side chatter going on Um, you know maybe working you know with you know the the folks um in management to identify some alternatives, you know, would, would be a good fit for you. I, I think there's a lot of strategies from a, a sensory success enabler perspective, like the noise canceling headphones, adjustable lighting, um, fragrance-free workplace policies, uh, some of the noise abatement systems, or, you know, access to fidgets, that kind of a thing. Um, and then, you know, lastly, and, you know, a really crucial one, particularly to think about, you know, during, you know, this month, like you had talked about is the, neurodiversity acceptance training right um and how that contributes to the psychological safety and promoting the understanding from your peers and your managers and your leadership um how to um you know mitigate the distress that the folks who are you know in masking and burnouts are experiencing um and just some of those strategies and, and what that can look like and it can have really potent effects from uh, the perspective, like you had mentioned before, of penetrating that culture, right? Um, Rather than, you know, putting out the fire, trying to prevent the fire from happening in the first place. Um, So yeah, that's kind of a short list there of things that you could be thinking about if you are in that situation where your your company has a, a return to office mandate.
0: Oh, that's so great. And we're going to have a full comprehensive list of all of Charles's suggestions for success enablers coming up later this week on the Brain Dump blog. And we also got, I'd love to share some of these highlight responses from our recent survey of the Mind Your Autistic Brain community, the conversation that we were having on Instagram. So here's some of the accommodations. Many respondents indicated that having appropriate accommodations, including flexible work hours and work from home options would make employment so much easier. Clear expectations. This was one that came up a lot in the conversation. Clear and consistent expectations and instructions in the workplace were seen as very beneficial across the board. Inclusiveness and training. There is a need for more inclusive training for different learning styles and a better understanding of neurodiversity among colleagues and management, flexible work hours from part time to flexible work hours so that you can meet the the time needs for your peak performance hours, you know, if you've got that That window and maybe yours is not a traditional nine to five window. Maybe you, you know, hit it really hard for three or four hours, let's say late in the evening, and then you've done eight hours worth of work in that three to four hour window. Um, You know, there's a lot of conversation that we need to have around that perception of that stringent nine to five, five days a week model I don't think it's serving us anymore. Um support having access to support workers or resources to bridge any skill gaps and provide assistance was some of the thing were some of the things that were suggested as well. And lastly, awareness and advocacy raising awareness around neurodiversity and neurodistinct thinkers and advocating for change in the workplace culture and policies was emphasized in our conversation. If you'd like to join that conversation, if you'd like to drop anything in the comments box here on LinkedIn or YouTube right now, um, or any questions that you have around this topic for Charles and I, please, we invite you to, to share those in the chat box. We would love to answer your questions or share your insights here. And these are just some highlights from Charles and from our Mind Your Autistic Brain community from suggestions that will be coming up on an article on the Brain Up blog this week. Be sure to follow Mind Your Autistic Brain on LinkedIn and Instagram to read the article. And we will have a special download for our Beyond Autistic Burnout audience when you sign up to our spicy pepper VIP email list at mindyourautisticbrain.com. So Charles, as we kind of wrap up our conversation today, you know, we've covered elements that the NeuroDistinct community shares and are the factors and elements that have the most impact on employment and career advancement, along with insights from you, our wonderful guest. We love that you joined us in this vital topic discussion today. So let's check and see if we had any questions here. Ah, Yes. Okay. Hey, Gavin. Uh, so yes, a recording will be available. It publishes on podcasts later today. So you can get that on Spotify. And it's on all major uh, podcast platforms. So you can definitely get the recording. Do you guys have any questions there? We've, we've had a really great group. And I, I see you guys were like listening and really taking it all in as we were sharing this. So You know, Charles, are there anything, is there anything that we haven't talked about? Was there anything that we didn't bring up that's kind of coming to you? You're like, you know, this was really important and I want people to know this.
1: I think we about covered it, Carol Junior. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot for, for folks to chew on. So I'm gonna, you know, leave it at that. I think I rambled a lot today, but no, I just wanted to to give you your flowers as well. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, this is my my maiden voyage in the in the podcast space. So it was great to do, be amongst friends while I did it. Um and you know, I just just really appreciate you and you know this opportunity to to speak to some of these uh priorities and pain points, you know, from the, the noticing community. So yeah, thank you so much.
0: Well, I was so excited to have you on the show because you and I chat on the side and, and we've been having a conversation around these topics for quite a while now. So I love that you joined us. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your insights in so many different areas, because I think it's really important that we remember there are so many aspects and elements to how we approach success enablers. This doesn't just happen in the workplace. This happens in education. This happens in healthcare. And this happens at home at your back door, guys. I want to take you and share a few little things that we have coming up this month in, um, the wonderful community of Mind Your Autistic Brain. This month, our October Lunch and Learn series, this is a 30-minute free series that I try and offer at least every month, if not every other month. And my special guest this month is Judy She She's the author of The Power of Acknowledgement. And we are going to be diving into How do we start to take some of these success enablers and start building cultures and environments where we are really helping to decrease burnout and we're starting to increase how we are seeing and communicating with one another more effectively? Oh, my goodness. Thanks so much. We got a question that came up here. We're going to get to it in just a sec. Lastly here, I would love for you to join our Spicy Pepper VIP email list. This is where you can get discounts, event notices like our Lunch and Learn series, as well as resources because you'll be getting that download that you have this month coming from Charles and myself with all of those insights for success enablers. You can get this at mindyourautisticbrain.com. Okay, so let's pop over here real quick because we've got a question in the chat, Charles. and it is. How essential is community of practice and shared practice?
1: Got it. That's an
0: interesting yeah. question. Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead, gonna...
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I think a lot of people really appreciate that community element. Yeah, we, we've seen. We've seen a lot of rise, you know, from a, a like neurodiversity ERG movements, you know, uh, arising at these different companies and, and what that looks like, um, and just how have being organized and having that agenda and those different systems of support has been huge for for a lot of the different folks. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's been appreciated by a lot of folks. But but you know, Carol Jean being the 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 burnout expert over here, and you know, just with a, with a lot of your different experiences, I'm curious to hear what you have to say as well.
0: Gavin, thanks so much for this great question. You know, it really is, it is essential. I don't, I don't think it's a degree of how essential is it. I I say that it's, it's a core essential that we have community. And, you know, like Charles mentioned, those employee resource groups are really important. Um, I've spoken at employee resource groups in really big companies, just down to my small local businesses. Um, And what I have found and what I have, heard from feedback, you know, as I've gone in and spoken and worked with a lot of employee resource groups just across the globe is how transformative it has been. You know, and you heard Nat Likowski last week from IBM sharing how vital and essential those employee resource groups, that community, being able to support one another and also being able to like, you know, Nat was saying they have like this extensive list on their Slack channel around, you know, hey, this is what's working for me when it comes to like success enablers, right? And I think that's really important because I don't know about you guys, but I tend to get in my own head and I'm thinking about the stuff and I'm doing the stuff and I sometimes like did I say that out loud or should I share that kind of thing? So I think it's so important that we do have community and that we do start, start to share what we're practicing, what's working for us, maybe what's not working for us, right? Um, in the unveiling method, when I'm I'm teaching that burnout to thriving journey, one of the things that I'll tell people uh, you know, all the time is, look, I'm going to share with you what worked for me, but I'm also going to share with you what didn't work for me because that might be the thing that works for you. And I think that's really important. We got to remember, you know, some, not everything's going to work and we got to, we got to put on our lab coat and really test it out. And I think that having community as part of that sort of takes some of that scary out of the trial and error sometimes. Oh, thank you so much. Matthew, you said great conversation and great guest. I agree. And fantastic. Thanks, Gavin. Oh my goodness. Yep. Allison, interesting debate. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad that you were here. Thank you for adding your voice to this conversation. And we would love for you to add more of those success enablers or maybe the challenges or barriers that you face throughout your professional employment career. Maybe if there were advancement um, barriers that you've hit, if there's things around interviewing or just getting in the door or the sustainability on the other side. Of hiring. What were some of those things for you? Please join us over on Instagram at Mind Your Autistic Brain and look for that post that's asking what were some of the barriers or challenges that you faced in employment? We want to hear from you. This is part of the really important um conversation that we are trying to elevate and raise our voice and shine a light on here at Mind Your Autistic Brain and Beyond Autistic Burnout Talk Show. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh my goodness, this is just I hope you feel energized and empowered to take on the challenges ahead. Remember, you are not alone in this journey. Let's stay connected. Follow me on social media. Join our thriving community because, you know, as we pointed out from Gavin's question, community is essential. And subscribe to the podcast for more transformative episodes. We're here every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Together, we'll continue to break free from burnout and unlock our authentic selves. Until next time, this is Carol Jean Whittington signing off. Keep thriving, my friend.